revolutionary talk for revolutionary times. Promoting peace, liberty, and prosperity around the clock. LibertyTalk.fm. Welcome to Medicine on Call, where it's all about living the solutions. Today, I have one of my favorite people on, a really special friend, um, Dr. Marilyn Singleton. I love having her on. It's been a while, so I wanted to get her on to catch up. Um, she's the past president of the American, uh, sorry, Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. She's also a board-certified anesthesiologist. She graduated from Stanford and earned her MD at UCSF Medical School. She completed two years of residency at UCSF and then her anesthesia residency at Harvard's Beth Israel Hospital. Um, she also has attended the UC Berkeley Law School. So she's both an MD and a JD, and that's a special skill, especially in the environment that we find ourselves in, in our healthcare system. Um, she interned at the National Health Law Project and practiced insurance and health law. So this is somebody who knows what she's talking about when it comes to our healthcare system, how the insurance um, market has changed the face of healthcare, and now, more importantly, what's going to happen in the future. I think we're living in times that are really interesting, and people are, have been talking about Medicare for all, about single payer, about free market medicine, direct primary care. And I think it's time that we actually revisit that since we're coming into election year and people need to be educated so they can make a conscious choice about who they vote for instead of what their feelings are. So, Dr. Marilyn, thank you so much for coming on today. I'm so blessed and happy to have you back on. Oh, it's always a pleasure, and you're so kind to me, Dr. George. Well, you're you're my bud, so it's not hard. I love what you do, and I, I really thank you for your time and your attention on the front line because, you know, APS has been an absolute bulwark against all the attacks against our medical system and our profession, and it takes a lot of energy to be out there and to to, to, to fight the good fight and educate people, and I really, really, really respect what you do. Well, thank you. So, you know, in the, well, in the, what can we educate people about today? Well, let's talk about single payer and Medicare for all, because I think the election cycle is going to, I think many things is going to hinge on, but that's one of those things that it's black or white in terms of either you're for health care that's delivered in a way that's patient-centered, that's doctor and patient relationship-centered, or you're not, and you're looking at the government to become the the nanny or you know the arbiter of what constitutes medical care. So, in your opinion, and I may be biased, but do you think that Medicare for all is a viable entity? Is it going to give people what they think, free everything, go out and see the doctor that you want? have whatever procedure you want and not pay anything for it. It absolutely can't happen. And I think people know it can happen. It's it's that sort of uh, wishful thinking where it sounds like a great idea. And I want to go down two paths here. First of all, just the idea that when things sound like a great idea, you have to really be careful. What's that old expression? If it's too good to be true, it isn't. And if the government, let's just take cost out of it for point number one. 
if the government could come up with a way where magically there was money to pay for everybody, what do you think the trade-offs would be? There would be trade-offs of your privacy. Already there's a government department that, and the Health and Human Services Department that collects all the medical records. Now, supposedly your name isn't on it, but we all know how much we can trust that. And our privacy is important. It's, I feel like it's our last piece of personal property. Our mm-hmm. bodies are our personal property, and we don't want to have any intrusion there. So that's kind of one point, that there's going to be a big trade-off even if you could come up with the money. And that's a big even if. And as it turns out, it's unlikely that you ever could come up with the money. Bernie Sanders' plan, it was estimated to cost $32 trillion. And the way they throw around trillion, I don't even think people know what that is anymore. I found a good little statistic for trillion to kind of bring it down to earth that if you earned $40,000 per year, it would take you 25 million years to earn $1 trillion. So think about that. This is the amount of money, and they're talking about $32 trillion. And then Elizabeth Warren's plan is $52 trillion. Where is that money going to come from? It's going to come from us. They say that it's the millionaires and billionaires. Well, Fortune magazine says that there's 535 billionaires in the United States. How much could you possibly tax them before they decide that they don't want to keep their money on U.S. soil? It will be in a sunny island in the Caribbean, and then we won't even have our billionaires here. This is what happens. And then it's time to tax the middle class. And poor Bernie Sanders, who I feel like is the only honest one in the bunch, is sticking to his guns and admits, yeah, we'll have to tax the middle class. And his, in his plan that there would be a 4% surtax over and above the payroll taxes on anybody earning more than 29000 a year. So that's bordering on the working poor mm-hmm. that you're taxing. And then the payroll taxes would have to be tripled. And everybody pays payroll taxes, again, even the working poor. Now, the claim is that, yes, We're going to have to put all these taxes on, but then you won't have to pay premium. But my question from that is, what would you rather have, the money in your pocket and you choose how to spend it or having them taken out before you've ever seen it in your paycheck? Well, personally, I prefer not to have anybody taken out at all. But, no, I mean, yeah, it's not a good choice either way. Because I think we're not, we're talking about apples and oranges. They're talking about coverage pretty much, right? Uh, The ability Mm -hmm. to pay for potential medical services. But nobody ever talks about the actual cost of the healthcare delivery system. 
it's not valid. It's not accurate. It's totally made up, and no one's addressing that. Why is that? And then we're going to take a break soon, but I just want to start that that conversation because I don't know how hospitals get away with facility fees and the opacity. I mean, granted, there's an executive order now that's supposed to make hospitals uh, put their prices online, and they're whining like, no, Tom, I've never seen such whining. And my favorite is people won't understand that. They'll be totally confused. I think I'd understand 250 for something versus 2000 wouldn't you? Absolutely. <laughs> That's kind of sad. Um, I'll let you think about that. And let's take our first break. You're listening to Medicine on Call. From treatment of sinusitis with balloon dilation to minimally invasive office procedures to correct snoring, Peachtree ENT Center offers state-of-the-art care. We also specialize in price transparency. You'll know the cost of our ENT services before they're rendered, whether you have a high deductible plan or no insurance at all. Make an appointment today to find out why Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Call 404-591-9100 or visit us at peachtreeentcenter.com. Are you having problems with persistent bad breath, constant throat clearing, hoarseness, a cough that won't go away, a sore throat, or a feeling that something's always stuck in your throat? Why not find out what the problem is so it can be fixed? At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking time to work with our patients as a team to get to the root of the problem. Make an appointment today to see why Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Call 404-591-9100 or visit us at peachtreeentcenter.com. You can catch the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify, and a host of other multimedia platforms. Subscribe and share it with your friends. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. We're speaking with Dr. Marilyn Singleton, and before the break, I gave a little teaser about why no one ever talks about the actual cost of our healthcare delivery system. Have you? What What do you think is the answer to that? Interestingly, you what you touched upon was the idea that nobody knows the prices, and I guess we that's where we have to get into definitions: cost versus price. We all know that that fancy handbag probably costs a couple dollars to make, but the price of it is $200 because somebody wants it, so they're going to pay that much money for that. Mm -hmm. And there's various ways things are priced, just when you look at economics. And generally, things are priced. It's, It's called the what the market will bear price. And so you charge whatever people will pay for it. Well, let's go back to why we have such high prices because the insurance companies are paying for it. So the patient doesn't know how much something costs. And so they have no reason to complain. And the only reason they complain is now it's coming to light because of the high copay that suddenly it matters. If you have to pay 20% copay, if something was $1,000 or if it was $100, mm-hmm. makes a big difference. So in a way, I'm almost glad that they've, push these things too far to get all of us, all of us consumers to open our eyes. And there's so many things that raise the cost. And we all know that when you have a middleman 
between you and the product, the cost is going to go up. That's why they have those outlet stores where even though they're not that cheap, but they're cheaper than if you go into Macy's or Nordstrom or whatever because they had to add an extra layer. So we have that in medicine. We have middlemen in the hospitals for purchasing things and middlemen uh, called pharmacy benefit managers that work with the insurers. Um that supposedly are getting you discounts, but they really don't, and uh, that raises the cost. There was a, uh, a neurologist I know who wanted to get a drug, a Parkinson's drug, for her patient, and Medicare, for all sorts of bizarre reasons, decided they wouldn't pay for it because he didn't have a specific test. It was physically impossible for him to take because he needed the medication. So one of those whole circular things that doctors go through all the time. Um, so I told her about good RX. Mm-hmm. As it turns out, good RX's price for the drug was one tenth the price of what it was had he gone through Medicare, and he would have had to pay more because his copay would have been more. So he went ahead and paid cash for it. So that lets you know, okay, the cost of the drug was, let's say I'll use the figure, $100, but the price of the drug was a 1000 mm-hmm. So we really have to think of that difference and think about everything that goes between what a reasonable price. And and so, of course, we want people to make a profit. Just when, you know, there's a whole system of pricing things that first you have to get back your manufacturing costs, then you have to get back your advertising costs, and then you have to pay yourself a salary. And then you say, okay, if you were the entrepreneur, that's what I'm going to charge for that purse I just made. And so, of course, we want people to make some money, and that helps you get good, innovative products. But when you have a lot of middlemen, insurers, and I hate to say this, I hate to cast aspersions, but our swampy politicians who take lobbying money from various people, so everybody gets a piece of the action, and the poor patients are at the very end of the chain. And we've got to move ourselves up to the start of this food chain Mm -hmm. and say, okay, let's have more um, policies that allow us to get rid of the middlemen. And uh, this whole, you mentioned facility fees that the hospitals tag on, and they say it's to make up uh, for the extra personnel they have to have in order to have surgery centers and all this sort of stuff. And then you wonder, well, why do they have to have extra personnel when a freestanding surgery center takes care of you just as well mm-hmm. and they don't charge a facility fee? Mm-hmm. So there's some sort of shenanigans going on. And we have to put our foot down and say, no, I'm not going to pay it. Or, and, and, and interestingly, I hate to interrupt that train of thought, that the government has put limits on how many surgery centers doctors can build. Right. And it's like, so at the same time, 
you've got an outpatient surgery center that costs less to use, but the government's saying, no, you can't build anymore. It doesn't make any sense. Yet they're willing to pay extra facility fees to a hospital. So something's wrong somewhere in that system. No, I absolutely agree with you. And it's it's like giving a, a dispensation for someone to do whatever they like and then you know, you're you're legislating in their favor. You don't have competition. You, they have the ability to try to, and if they have a chance, they'd squelch this executive order tomorrow. But my question, too, is what is this thing about nonprofit hospitals, but they're able to make pro- – how does that work? Because if, you, if you're – you know, you're building these palaces. These hospitals are not little namby-pamby things anymore. They're beautiful. They're taking up acres of land. I mean, there's flat screen TVs, two or three in each OR, and, you know, Spotify piped in. I mean, it's just beautiful. But that money is being spent on some of these hospitals that are not-for-profit. How do they get away with that? Because me, for the for the society or the neighborhood that they're in, if they were paying taxes, I think that would lower the tax burden probably on everybody around them, wouldn't it? I'm sure it would. And and I think it's so strange when uh, I've been in medicine long enough to remember the four bedrooms and a curtain between, which were pretty hideous. And, <laughs> and just for infection control, hospitals started to have single rooms. That's understandable. But some of the other things that are in hospitals and the fact that they're advertising on television, why should you have to advertise a hospital on television? Do you know how much that costs? Mm-hmm. But it can be not for profit because the money is going back into the hospital. And that's how you get around that. It's like, okay, you make some money and you use the money to buy brand new electric beds for every room. And that I, you want to ask, well, did you need them? Yes, in some cases you do. If you had old beds, you'd want to get beds where patients don't get pressure sores. So ultimately you would save money because the patient didn't get pressure sores and it would be better for the patient. Mm-hmm. That's very good. But some of this other equipment they get, and interestingly, in some towns years ago when CAT scans and MRIs came out, the towns decided, we're going to have one place have the MRI. Why should three hospitals all have an MRI? Mm-hmm. And uh, when I worked at Hopkins, when I was in Baltimore, they divided up the specialties kind of uh, hospital called Union Memorial, did the hand surgery. University of Maryland did the trauma, adult trauma. Hopkins did pediatric trauma, and Baltimore City did the burns. This was an enormous saving because burn units are very expensive. And but too many times, people hospitals say, "Well, we have it all," mm-hmm. so they will have their own burn unit. It might have three beds in it, but you've got to buy all the same expensive equipment as if you had ten beds. So there's a lot of things that could be done to help cut back on costs, but it, people don't want to. Why should they? Because all they have to do is send a bill to the government, the government pays it, or to the insurer, 
the insurer pays it. And now with the high co-pays and deductibles, the patients are really starting to suffer yeah. from this sort of devil-may-care attitude. Well, there's so many conflicts of interest here that work against the interests of the patients, and there's no pressure to to drop the price and it, for any of these guys. The insurance companies, I would think, want it to be high because you need them. If you could afford to pay for these things by yourself, you wouldn't be signing up for insurance plans, right? So exactly. they got a dog in the hunt. You have the hospitals, obviously, who are double dipping. They're getting money for indigent. They're getting money from the insurance companies and for the poor suckers who decide to pay them and not ask about the price, they're getting money from people who are self-paying. But uh, this whole system has two things that are really that no one ever talks about, the doctor and the patient. It cannot run without both of us. And I want to explore that when we come back, because I think there's an answer to this that doesn't involve the government, in my opinion. It's about us making conscious choices about how we, you know, how we want to interact with the system or not and choose an alternative. Um, as a way around it. And on that note, let's take our second break. You're listening to Medicine on Call. This is Dr. George from Medicine on Call. Each week I speak about our healthcare system and the problems with it. One of the main problems is the doctor-patient relationship. I've found that patients really crave time, the time to ask their doctor questions, and physicians crave the time to answer those questions in a thorough manner. Towards that end, Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center is pleased to announce a new video telemedicine service. We now offer consultation for second opinions and for people who'd like to learn more and ask questions about how to navigate the healthcare system in a cost-effective and efficient manner. Go to peachtreeentcenter.video-visits.com to learn more. Revolutionary Talk for Revolutionary Times. Liberty Talk FM. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. We're speaking with Dr. Marilyn, uh, Marilyn Singleton. And if people want to go to her website called caffeinatedthoughts.com and look up her articles, so she's written a lot of um, short articles, very pointed, very chock full. I give you a really flavor of, of uh, an in-depth, thoughtful account of what's going on, whether that's Medicare for all, whether that's um, talking about eugenics, euthanasia, infanticide, a lot of things, which I think we gloss over a lot in the healthcare realm. But there's a lot of things going on, not just about cost, but about the direction in which our, our, our I don't know, our profession is going. I remember, and we talked about this one of the first times you came on the show, about the Hippocratic Oath. And I remember taking it, and I'm never, I'll never forget it, is things that I cannot do. Can't provide abortion products or do it. I can't euthanize somebody. And I signed or, and, and recited that oath. I think things have changed dramatically because it's become a business where it's about the bottom line and it's about making money by any means necessary. Now, if that means that doctors get switched out and become administrators, if that means that registered nurses get switched out and become case managers, all about keeping this conveyor belt running, what's up with that with the patient? I mean, I think patient care is not, I think it's an afterthought all of a sudden. We're not the same. We are. It's a community of caregivers who have a specific 
you know, skill, talent, and place in that caregiving system. Do you think that's changed? Do you think they're trying to upset that particular order? Absolutely. And it's funny how culture can change. And and one of my friends has said, it's like becoming an alcoholic. You don't wake up one day and drink an entire quart of scotch and do that every day for two months and then you're an alcoholic. It's something gradual that happens. So you kind of don't notice it until it's like, whoa, I'm an alcoholic. And that's kind of what's happened in our whole medical care, the kind of that creeping in of a culture of death. And where when I I was so appalled and I think people who are pro-choice as far as uh, abortion were appalled, seeing the pediatric governor of Virginia talking about having a live birth and then killing the baby. Mm-hmm. It's like, we've gone too far. We're not, this isn't how we're supposed to feel about people. And then when hospice, which is a wonderful thing for people who don't want to expand their treatment and just kind of want to quietly die. I think it's a wonderful option. However, suddenly People are being pushed into hospice. I can't tell you how many people, and including myself, my own personal um, uh, run-in with hospice when my mother went in, the patient is admitted and they're given a hospice consult. And imagine how that feels. And they don't automatically sign you up, but... How's the family supposed to feel? Like, we've come in for antibiotics and you're saying my mother should be on hospice? Mm-hmm. And something people don't know, and I this is something I want everybody to know because hospice is being pushed. And like I say, there's a good place for it. If you sign up for hospice, it means you're foregoing other treatments. So people don't know that. And some people are fraudulently signed up for hospice that aren't even good hospice candidates just so the company can make some money because Medicare pays them $196 a day, whether they do anything for you or not. That's, you can make a lot of money pulling in 200 bucks a day and do nothing. So then the patient goes to try to get other treatment and they're like, well, they're on hospice. They can't use waived your right for us to pay for Medicare to pay for other treatment. So there's so many shenanigans Mm -hmm. that are going on. And like Dr. George said, there you are where the patients are the ones who suffer. That's tragic. I mean, I can't even imagine a family member depending on a system to guide them, you know, to, to trust them to get the best the options, all the options, by the way, and the best options for their loved one, not some pathway <laughs> that it's bigger than you. You don't even realize that you're you're being placed in this track and you can't get out of it. Let's say you decide you, you change your mind. So you're saying this, correct me, and I just want to make sure people understand. If you do sign up for hospice and you say, you know what, I want to go a different direction, do they not let you do that or they just don't well, tell you that there's no you can. 
you can unsign. I mean, you can go off hospice after X period of time. Mm-hmm. But what had happened with these poor people, of course, they didn't know they were on hospice oh, in the geez. first place. Oh, and wow. so they would say, well, I want X, Y, or Z treatment. And uh, they'd end up having to pay for it for the period that they were on hospice because Medicare is not paying for it because you were signed up for hospice, because you can be, quote, unquote, discharged from hospice. And that's apparently how some of these scams were discovered, that some of these for-profit hospice places were, quote, unquote, discharging a lot of patients. And wait a minute, you're supposed to be dying in six months. How can you be discharged? So, you know, it got... Uh, the feds looking into it. Um, what this points out and kind of segue into, you know, you talk about what are solutions for patients. Mm-hmm. This really emphasizes why patients need to have a relationship with their doctor. Because if you're having a good relationship with your doctor and not kind of being trooped through a clinic where nobody knows you, they would know, they would be making rounds on you in the hospital and say, wait a minute, this doesn't seem quite right. Because there's a lot of things that are done right at the admission of a hospital when you're signing all the admission papers and all that. Your doctor isn't there and you're signing all this stuff or a family member is signing all this stuff if you're really ill. And so half of it, you don't even know what you signed. You know, it's an emotional time. You just want to hurry up and get up in the room with your family member. Mm-hmm. And when you have a doctor that you know and he or she is going to come make rounds on you, they'll find out this isn't right for my patient, and they'll advocate for you in today's system. More of these systematic changes is doctors don't necessarily make rounds on the patients anymore. They have the hospitalist who's just sitting there in the hospital all day taking care of patients, which is fine, and it doesn't mean the hospitalist isn't a good doctor, but he doesn't know you. The first time he's ever seen you is when you were plopped in the bed. So it's a whole different landscape, and I advocate for having a primary care doctor or a doctor who you can go to. And a lot of times it's beyond just somebody whose nameplate says primary care, a neurologist, an ENT like Dr. George, just somebody who has a broad knowledge and who knows you. And so let's say you have uh, upper respiratory problems all the time. Take your ENT as your primary care because it's like diabetics basically use an endocrinologist as primary care. So it doesn't technically have to be somebody who's a uh, primary care doctor by trade, but a doctor that you go to all the time, they know you, they know your family, whether they your family likes you or whether your family wants to bump you off to <laughs> get your house, all these things. But this is the whole picture of medicine. It, it's not such a narrow focus like the, the insurance company. They don't care about all that stuff. No, 
They don't. And as a matter of fact, they care about their bottom line, which is you paying a, a copay and your your premium. And, I mean, it's a kind of like a roulette whether or not they're going to pay once you have a service done. I've just been just devastating to the to the patient to think that they're covered and to find out that it's not paid for. And I think, you know, there's our office is very aggressive about pre-certing and making sure it's covered. But in a big, busy office or even in a hospital sometimes, I would think there things could fall through the cracks where you had a procedure done, everybody thought it was covered, and bam, before you know it, you're actually getting dinged with a big bill. And you're on the hook, and there's no there's no recourse. Do you know what can well, patients? Well, I, I remember. Oh, oh, go ahead. Go go ahead. Sorry. No, I'm just. No, no. Well, when you were talking about not being covered, I remember several years ago when the insurance companies, which was at the time for most people that had cataracts as Medicare, decided it was not going to pay for an an assistant surgeon. And so until ophthalmologists caught on to that, there were people stuck with the bill for the assistant surgeon. Mm -hmm. And Medicare decided that a nurse could be the assistant and you didn't need another doctor. So that was that. And, you know, practices have changed. And But for quite a while, patients were hit up for a bill. The ophthalmologist didn't even know it. So these things happen. When you have these complicated systems, yeah, they're un, they're just unwieldy. They they they're not user friendly. They're not tailored for an individual. Not everybody's going to have the same outcome or need or get out of the hospital at the same time for the same procedure. Surgeries can take longer than they do for a you know a routine case. There's no room for variation and diversity. In, in, in a good way, you know, <laughs> in the good use of diversity in this instance, in this instance, it's about individualization of care. And there's no room for that in this system. And I feel and fear that something like Medicare for All will double down on the worst aspects of our healthcare system. On that note, let's take our last mm-hmm. break. You're listening to Medicine on Call. You're listening to Medicine on Call, where healthcare, business, and current events connect. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. We're having a really enlightening conversation with Dr. Marilyn Singleton. She's the past president of AAPS. And now that um, your stint is done with AAPS, are you doing more writing? Do you have any any projects that people can look for? Oh, uh, about every other week I do an op-ed and... um, I'm starting to do some things with the Heartland Institute and just all sorts of things. And you know how you think, oh, I'll have more time to do X, Y, and Z. (laughs) Suddenly you feel like you have less to take on more things. I just think my job is to do whatever I can to make things better for patients in this thing we call a healthcare system and emphasize that we're here as doctors to give you medical care, do things that you can't do for yourself, and that it's up to the patients to look out for their own health and kind of try to do the right things and eat right and, and um, 
don't smoke and all the things that we've been saying for years. And it, I always crack up when I look at the statistics on obesity and they say that half the kids are fat now. And I never remembered kids being fat when I was younger, but then we mm-hmm. played outside. Yeah. We didn't have the computer games. And so a lot of things have changed in society that in a way have made it harder for both patients and doctors that, you know, you can't tell your kid you can never play on a computer game, go out and ride your bike. And um, sometimes now kids are afraid to ride their bike because they read about child thieves and molesters and everything else. So our society is crazy and complex. And so there is no simple solution, but we can all do our part. And as patients too, you know, try to take care of yourself. And because as doctors, we want to take care of you mm-hmm. and do the best we can. And, and sometimes we just feel kind of hindered by government and insurance regulations. You mentioned the pre-authorization. My goodness, that's probably the worst thing. And patients don't even know about it where you want to do something and then have to ask somebody's permission to do it. So their insurance that they paid premiums for and figured everything was covered uh, will pay for it. And the patient won't be blindsided. And that's kind of the dirty underbelly of the whole system. And those are the things I try to write about and get out there and hope people will contact their Congress people if something comes out. And, and one thing about contacting Congress people is that nobody ever does it. And um, they have a kind of a little formula that if one person contacts them, that equals 500 people feeling that way. Hmm. So you really have a bigger voice than you think you have. Um, because they know nobody, you know, people complain all the time that nobody ever does anything or says right. anything. Okay. And, um, you know, so we got to do the best we can. I mean, it starts with us, and they get their power through us. I think we forget that. It's not top down, it really is bottom up. And, you know, I didn't realize that we had that much power with a phone call. 500, they think 500 people think that way. Imagine if you were to mobilize your friends on Facebook, because people have thousands of friends these days, to have a campaign for something that you really believe in. I think everybody can get their head around insurance companies and the fact that they're deciding what constitutes medical care. That is unacceptable that a pencil pusher gets to say whether or not you can prescribe a medication to your patient or send them for a scan that they need or do a procedure because some actuarial in some insurance companies say no. That's someone's quality of life, and it's totally unacceptable. They can make, I mean, Congress makes a lot of laws, which I think are ridiculous, but I'd like to see something like this. If you pay for uh, your premium and you expect health care services, then you should get them. Isn't that fraud? If you're paying for something and you're denied it with the mindset of we cover you, we love you, you know, you're our best friend kind of thing, and then when you actually need it, they tell you no. Is that can you consider well, that fraud? Of course, the the contract that they send you in the mail, which is forty pages long, mm-hmm. somewhere buried in there, it says they're not going to pay for 
diddly, but we don't know that. Well, it says on the card, just because you have this card doesn't mean we'll cover you. I mean, and that's a, a way of saying it in the shorthand, but basically it means nothing. They get to decide whether you, whether you get a care, a service or not. And for us, whether we get paid or not, you know, they get to decide whether or not you're going to get reimbursed. And what they, and you're going to like what we give you and you can't bill the patient for the difference. And if we don't pay it, you can't ask the patient for the money, even though you've given the service in good faith, pre-certed. And that's the sad part because with medicine, you give the service and then you wait three months to be paid for it because you do believe the insurance company is going to pay for Mm -hmm. it. And it's certainly not a service, even if you could take it back. You know, that kind of doesn't comport with the oath of Hippocrates to, to do it. Well, I'm going to put your inflamed appendix back in. Yeah, it kind of is a one-way system. <laughs> but, um, you know, you wouldn't want to do it, but it, it is sort of an odd system. You can't go to the grocery store and walk out and say, well, I'll pay you three months from now. No, you it can't. just doesn't work that way. And then you don't have people saying you should like it and you're a bad person because <laughs> you don't have any of that. I mean, you know, that's right. There, it's, there has to be some sort of sea change. I think we're at a position now where the pendulum has to swing back because it's gone so far, just like everything else in society you just described. It is so crazy that we have to take a stand as physicians. You know, someone saying that was, I think we had a conversation off mic about, Oh, they're just as good as a physician. You know, they're just as trained just as long and it'll, it'll do. That's not true. If, if you're going to school for four years of just the medical school and then whatever residency time, six years, four years, ten years, it does not equate with eight months of training, sometimes online. I don't think it's, it's right for the person to be put in that position who's being pushed out there, the patient, who doesn't know who's taking care of them, and I would counsel my patients, ask who's in the room with you. Who are you? What are your credentials? It's not a rude thing. You want to know exactly what's going on. If someone is caring for your family member, you, I kind of want to know. I want a rapport. I want to know what their training is. I want to make sure that I'm in good hands. Personally, I don't really trust that many people these days, so I think it would be in your interest, would it not? Maybe if you'd ask questions, you'd know if you were on hospice track. Instead of okay, I'll sign it. Do you do anything like that with anything else in your in your um, you know in your world? Do you sign contracts for cars or whatever you're doing without reading it? Maybe some people do, but I think most people ask the hard questions, don't they? They do, and interestingly, there are groups of people who are fighting back. There's um, a whole movement now of getting patients to have their a pre-written little contract that they take with the hospital just with regard to so-called surprise medical bills. I call it surprise insurance not paying for your medical bill because the doctor did a service, she's going to send a bill. So the bill isn't a surprise. It's a surprise that the insurance isn't going to pay for it. Right. Where you'll just say if... I am billed for this. I will pay no more than X 
rate and you can make it up. You can use Medicare as the rate or whatever hmm. and they can take it or leave it. So there's kind of a movement for that. Um, and hopefully that will take off. But a lot of this really does take educating patients. So one of the problems we forget because we're all buried in this healthcare policy world and you, it's like second nature to talk about this. Most people are sitting there, they get a bill, can't pay it, and they're saying, what the heck? And that's their health care policy. Mm-hmm. And so it, it is up to us as doctors of policy types to do our best to get the ear of people who might listen and listen to us rather than the lobbying money, which is a tough road to hoe, <laughs> and keep our patients educated and just let them know that be careful, be wary, and um, that's about all we can do. But it's it's a lot, and if, if a, a law comes up and you hear about it, and a lot of times they'll briefly say some of these things on the mail, thank goodness for the Internet, and you can look something up on the Internet, mm-hmm. and if you find it, know, learn the law number, and you can tell your congressperson, and they're easy to find, just put in where you live and there'll be maps of your congressional district if you don't know who your specific congressperson is. And by email, you can just say, could you look into this bill? Could you vote for this bill? Could you sponsor this bill? I They had a bill that I something I'm interested in is elder abuse. And there is a bill called Stamp Out Elder Abuse. And it was just having a stamp that was alerting people to elder abuse and all the money from the stamp would go to the Department of Justice um, to help pay for programs. And so I wrote my congressman and wrote everybody on the committee the same letter, just, you know, good old computers, and mailed it out. And fortunately, the congressman, because on the beginning of his letter, I said, I am one of your constituents, Mm -hmm. so he was looking for a vote, (laughs) and he said he'd sponsor the bill. Now, whether it goes anywhere or whatever, but it, and I got a letter back and a phone call. So somebody in their office, if they have decent workers in their office, will read your stuff. Well, that's really heartening, you know, so that you're not out here on an island just complaining. You can actually make a difference and be a, you know, start a movement, create a movement. I don't think anybody's happy with the status quo, but you don't have to sit there and take it. And I'd rather be proactive. I'd rather say that, you know, I tried and failed than sit back and wait for me to get hit with something that I really can't live with as a patient or as a physician. So, I mean, that's a great thank you so much for that, because I think that would really energize people to start, again, thinking outside the box and taking their power back. And a phone call or a text is not that hard. You know, put your feelings out there because it actually is listened to. I think the most important thing that we have is that they all want to get back in. They don't care if they're Democrat, Republican, Independent. They want to get back in. That club is like a drug for those folks. And so... We have that power of, I'm not voting for you. It gets their attention, doesn't it? It sure does. And you were so right. It is their drug. 
and um, make them do their job. And that's the bottom line. Do your job. You were voted to do X, Y, or Z, so get your butt out there and do it. <laughs> I think that's a good place to stop with some a call to action. Again, I want to thank you so much for coming on. I just love having you on. You're you're just a really special person. I'm really blessed to know you, and I can't wait to have you back on so we can talk and educate and chew the fat some more in a distant time. In the, well, closely. Oh, well, thank you. Oh, it's always a pleasure, Dr. George. Well, I hope you have a blessed day and a great holiday and happy new year. I'm sure I'll see you, talk to you before then, but I want to get you on, on the record that you'll come back and visit with me again. Oh, you're making me say it out loud? I oh, am. my goodness. Of course. <laughs> of course. Well, thanks again. And thank you, everybody, for listening to Medicine on Call. Revolutionary talk for revolutionary times. Promoting peace, liberty, and prosperity around the clock. LibertyTalk.fm.